Welcome to Ominous Whisper, Season 1, Episode 4. My name is Vincent Rivera. Um, as a reminder, my associate Christian Haskell will be unable to attend for the foreseeable future due to some scheduling issues with his full-time job. The show contains adult content and listener's discretion is advised. Today, the first topic I'll be discussing is Eileen Warnos, her background, upbringing, and why she set off to kill several people, all of whom were men. I'll be quoting primarily from biography.com, but also sources from capitalpunishmentincontext.org. An abused child who later earned her living as a sex worker, Eileen Warnos was found guilty of killing six men and was later executed in a Florida prison. Serial killer Eileen Warnos was sexually abused and thrown out of her home as a teenager. Having been involved in a previous incident with the law, she made a living as a sex worker on Florida's highways, and in 1989, she killed a man who had picked her up. She went on to kill at least five other men and was eventually caught, convicted, and placed on death row. Though her sanity was questioned, Warnos was executed by lethal injection in 2002. In addition to documentaries, books, and an opera, her story was depicted in the 2003 film Monster. Warnos was born on February 29, 1956 in Rochester, Michigan, growing up in the nearby Troy area to the south. The young Warnos experienced horrifying tumult during her childhood. Her father killed himself while serving prison time for child molestation, while her mother abandoned Warnos and her older brother Keith, leaving them to be raised by their grandparents. Yet, Warnos' grandmother was alleged to be an alcoholic and her grandfather a terrifying, violent force. Warnos would later state that she was sexually abused by her grandfather and had sexual relations with her brother. She became pregnant by her early teens and the infant boy was given up for adoption. During her adolescence, Warnos was also forced out of her home and lived in the woods. Having Previously been awarded the state, Warnos subsisted on a vagabond existence as an adult, hitchhiking and engaging in sex work to survive. She was arrested during the mid-1970s for charges related to assault and disorderly conduct, and eventually settled in Florida, where she met wealthy yachtsman Louis Fell. The two were married in 1976, but Fell annulled the union shortly thereafter upon Warnos' being arrested in another altercation. A decade later, having been involved in numerous additional crimes, Warnos met 24-year-old Tyria Moore in Daytona, Florida, and the two embarked on a romantic relationship. It would later be revealed that from late 1989 into the fall of 1990, Warnos had murdered at least six men along Florida highways. In mid-December 1989, the body of Richard Malloy was found in a junkyard with five more men's bodies to be discovered over subsequent months. Authorities were able to track down Warnos and more from fingerprints and palm prints left in the crash vehicle of another missing man, Peter Sims. Warnos was arrested in a bar in Port Orange, Florida, while police tracked down more in Pennsylvania. To avoid prosecution, Moore made a deal, and in mid-January 1991, she elicited a phone confession from Warnos, who took full and sole responsibility for the murders. 
a media frenzy ensued over the case due in part to the lurid nature of the crimes. During the trial, Warnos asserted that she had been raped and assaulted by Mallory and had killed him in self-defense. Though not revealed in court, Mallory had previously served a decade-long prison sentence for sexual assault. She stated that her killing of five other men had been in self-defense as well, though she would later retract these statements. On January 27, 1992, a jury found Warnos guilty of first-degree murder for the Mallory case, and, re- and she received the death penalty. Over the ensuing months, Warnos pleaded guilty to the murders of five other men whose murder she was charged with and received a death sentence for each plea. Outside of court, she later admitted to the killing of Sims, whose body was never recovered. Spending a decade on death row, Wernos eventually opted to fire her appeals lawyers, who were working for a stay of execution, but a court-appointed att- attorney was concerned about her comments made by Warnos that suggested she was profoundly disconnected from reality. In 2002, Florida Governor Jeb Bush lifted a temporary stay of execution after three psychiatrists deemed her mentally competent to understand the death penalty and the reasons for its implementation. Warnos was executed by lethal injection on the morning of October 9, 2002. Her reported last words were, and I quote, I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock, and I'll be back like in a fence day with Jesus June 6th, like the movie, Big Mother Ship and all. I'll be back. The victims were Rich Mallory. The first victim was shop owner Richard Mallory in 1989, a 51-year-old white man who picked up a prostitute along Interstate 75 in Florida to engage in sex for pay. A Volusia County deputy discovered his body several miles away from his abandoned car. Mallory had been shot multiple times in the chest. Second victim is David Spears. The nude body of David Spears, a 43-year-old construction worker, was found June 1, 1990 in Citrus County. He had been shot six times in the torso. The third victim, Charles Carskadon. A few days after Spears' body was discovered, the body of Charles Carskadon, 40, was discovered in Pasco County. The part-time radio worker had been shot nine times in the chest and stomach. Fourth victim, Troy Burris. Marion County law enforcement found the body of Troy Burris, a 50-year-old salesman, on August 4, 1990, less than a week after he had been reported missing. Though the body was fairly decomposed, the medical examiner was able to determine that the cause of death was two gunshots to the torso. The fifth victim, Charles Humphreys, a retired Air Force major, police chief, and Florida child abuse investigator, Charles Humphreys was found dead in Marion County on September 12, 1990. The body was fully clothed and had suffered multiple gunshots to the head and torso. Humphrey's car was later found in Suwannee County. The sixth victim, Peter Sims. 65-year-old Peter Sims left Central Florida and headed for New Jersey in June of 1990. His car was found in Orange Springs on July 4, 1990. Though Sims' body has never been found, witnesses described two women near the car in Orange Springs. The seventh and final victim is Walter Antonio. The partially disrobed body of Walter Antonio, 62, was found November 19, 1990, in a remote part of Dixie County. He had been shot four times in the back and head. Antonio's car was found five days later in Brevard County, Florida. 
This concludes Eileen Warnos. I'll move on to listener submissions. job as a night guard for a flower shop and I was given a set of strange rules to follow. My parents had both died in a car crash and I was at my lowest in a small town in West Virginia. I was 17, almost 18, living with my grandma and struggling to find some good work. While walking down the street to get a newspaper to check for job offers, I walked past a small flower shop named Rosemary's Roses that had a piece of paper with hidden written cursive and writing stating night guard needed for my flower shop thieves keep stealing rare flowers requirements at least 18 and tall muscular figure ask inside 125 dollars per night i looked at that number over and over again and i thought 125 dollars count me in and i went inside there was a frail looking old lady at the counter who i'm guessing was rosemary and she was reading a botany magazine she greeted me with hello darling would you like to make a purchase or just browse? And I instantly responded with, oh, um, I want to apply as a night guard. She looked at my form and her face lit up and she said, well, all right, no time for interviews. There's not really too much to this job. Your shift starts today. Take this key and come at 12 p.m. Your shift ends at 7.30 in the morning. I was surprised with how desperate she was. Maybe it was my form. I'm 6'3 and halfway to being shredded or the problem was as bad as she was making it seem. As the clock hit 11.30 p.m., I arrived and unlocked the door to the shop. The lights were out and I could barely see, so I stumbled over to the light switch and turned it on. On the small table where Rosemary would sit, next to a giant Venus flytrap, was another piece of paper with the same cursive on it. There stood, Hello, night guard. Welcome to the job. You may sit in my chair and browse through my gardening magazines or use your mobile device if you have one during your free time. There are several rules to this job, so please read through them thoroughly. If you are confused by the plant type mentioned, refer to the signs next to them. Rule number one, conduct a patrol every hour. Make sure everything is in its place and there's no one snooping around. Rule number two, if you're walking in the back next to the rare flower section and the climbing rose starts growing rapidly and is squirming, grab a pair of provided wire cutters and cut off at least five inches of it before sealing the cart part with plant glue. Do this quickly or it might wrap itself around you. Rule three, if the giant Venus flytrap on your desk starts screaming while you are in the time between your patrols, hide under the desk, you will see a figure resembling a man covered in leaves walking around. Grab the provided hydrochloric acid spray bottle and spray it five to six times. It will scream and try to hit you, but it will die before it can. Rule four, at around 1.30, if you notice an abundance of morphed looking bees around while on your patrol or at the desk, Grab the beekeeper suit in the drawer of the desk and the same hydrochloric acid and locate the hive. It will usually be dark brown and be in the back room of the shop near the hibiscus. Spray it three times and then get out of there fast. Rule five, if a quote unquote customer enters, then responds to its request. 
it will ask for either a Blythus comparatus, red pine, or black vine. None of these exist. If it asks for Blythus comparatus, tell it that it's sold out. If it asks for red pine, oblige and grab a red rose from the back and give it to it. If it asks for a black vine, look it in the drawer and find a small pistol which is in there. Threaten him to leave, and if it doesn't, use the pistol to neutralize it. Remember to make sure it starts evaporating before returning to your duties. Rule 6. If you are on your patrol when you start hearing the flowers talking to you, locate the exact flower and pull it out with the root and dispose of it in the waste bin. Rule 7. There might be flower pots or flowers moving around during your patrols, so make sure to put them back or replant them. And Rule 8. If an actual thief enters, make him get on the floor or with a pistol and call the police with a landline if you don't have a cell phone. If he threatens you or doesn't listen, do what you think is right. I laughed and thought the lady had a problem or something, and then I went out on the requested patrol. I was walked near the rare flower section, and I saw some movement in the corner of my eye. The climbing rose. It was moving. I was fascinated in it and looked at it for a good while before it started coming to me. I continued marveling at it when it latched onto my arm and started tightening. Its thorns dug into my skin and I quickly reached for the wire cutters which were almost out of reach and then I cut that stuff off. It quickly fell limp and I sealed its amputated part with a plant glue as instructed. After the encounter I studied my wounds and found the holes in my arm weren't that bad so I didn't try to patch them up. I quickly realized that the lady wasn't kidding about the rules. I was about 30 minutes into my free time when I heard some relatively quiet screeching. I looked around when I noticed it was coming from the giant Venus flytrap. I looked through the rules and quickly went oh shit before hiding. A tall figure which looked like a man with ghillie suit on strolled through the area with a limp. I examined its form before it went out of my sight. I grabbed the acid bottle and ran out of the space under the desk. It looked at me and screeched, but then I sprayed it. It started sprinting toward me, and right when it was about to hit me, it evaporated, and I was caked with its dust. At 1.20 in the morning, 10 minutes after an uneventful patrol, I heard a slight buzzing that sounded distant. At 1.25 a.m., I saw a mentioned bee, but thought nothing of it. At 1.30 a.m., I noticed the sheer volume of bees that I collected. I kind of recoiled and donned the beekeeper suit and spray bottle. As I walked over to the back room, I could barely hear, but the buzzing was too loud, and my vision was almost non-existent with the number of bees. I reached the nest, and it was a huge thing that was as big as an eight-year-old. I panicked and sprayed it like ten times in two seconds with a trigger finger, which I knew I never had, and I ran. I heard a loud pop behind me and a horde of bees was coming toward me, and then it fell silent. The bees were all gone, and so was the nest. At around 2 a.m. before patrol, the mentioned quote-unquote customer arrived. It was kind of average looking, but with the dark, hollowed eyes of a sleep-deprived college student. It was wearing formal attire, and it asked for a red pine, thankfully. I gave it a bright red rose, and it thanked me before leaving. During the next patrol, I heard a distinct whispering, and I stopped and listened and realized someone or something was trying to talk to me. Hey, come here, man. 
I heard from the corner. I walked over before realizing there was no one and nothing was there except a red tulip. Then I recalled rule six. I tried to grab the tulip next to the root, but then it did something that made me stop in my tracks. I could hear my parents. They begged me not to pull the tulip. I sort of obliged before pushing myself to rip it out. You can bet that I dunked that stupid tulip into the trash. During the next two to three patrols, some object movement happened, but nothing serious. I did notice that same guy walked by the store like six times and peering into it. I pulled out the pistol, which was a small Walther PPK, just in case, but I never used it. My situation was really bad then, and living with my grandma didn't make anything better. I contemplated continuing that strange job for the pay. So let me start by saying this. One, I worked in mental health for about 16 years, and two, I'm impulsive and used to make really shitty decisions, so this is most definitely not even among the top 10 creepiest encounters of my life. That being said, it was still strange and scary at the time. I believe I was about maybe 29 or so when this happened. I worked the evening shift at the time and routinely would grab fast food on my way home at night because I often didn't have time to eat at work. See aforementioned poor choices. Anyway, I had grabbed a sandwich from a place that and was happily eating as I was driving like the animal that I was about 10 minutes from home. For reference, I live in a rural part of the Midwest and there are many little towns, villages connected by the country where houses are pretty sparse. I was leaving the town where I grabbed food and entering the county area that sits between it and my own village. As I'm driving and pounding a burger, I happen to see a figure crouched down in a ditch across from a home that sits at the edge of town where it starts to get wooded and the houses are more spread out. I think to myself, what the fuck is this jabroni trying to pull? And I quickly surmise that he's probably casing the house that he's across the road from. I turn my car around and pull a little off down the road and decide I'm, I'm going to call the cops and report it before anything happens and I wanted to be able to offer him their exact location. So I sort of slowly drive back past this figure while heading in the opposite direction and as I'm getting a better look this time I see a man in a dressed dark clothing something and instead of looking like he's hiding in wait it actually seems like he's crouched and doubled over with his arms crossed his abdomen like he's in pain so I turn my car back around again this time I stop my car about 20 30 feet away from him roll down my window and ask him if he's okay. I explained that I was a nurse and could help, but that I didn't want to get out of the car since I was by myself. He moaned loudly, that's okay, and confirmed that he was hurt. He told me that someone had come by and just randomly beat the shit out of him with a mental bat. He said it was getting hard to breathe and I told him how to sit to help with his breathing and that I was going to call an ambulance. He did what I told him to, and I agreed to let me call 911, so I did. So now I'm parked alongside the road watching this dude struggle in the ditch. Again, it's a fairly small town, so I knew that it wouldn't take long for EMS to arrive. Now that I had a moment to process, I started to figure out that it probably been a drug deal gone bad or something. Where we live, there's something called rails to trails, which are really nice biking, walking paths, 
that are often located in wooded areas that run alongside railroad tracks. Where this guy was located, the trail was um, about half a block distance behind him. I knew people met up on the trails for nefarious shit sometimes because it was well covered, empty at night, and not police because vehicles were blocked from entering. So yeah, my mind is already starting to piece together this dude's situation because people don't usually just beat the hell out of strangers with a metal bat for no good reason. I'm also still on the phone with 911 operator because she told me to stay online until help arrived. As I'm having these thoughts and just waiting for the squad, all of a sudden this piece of crap old green minivan comes squealing up in the opposite direction and stops right in front of the guy in the ditch. It's a heavy set man and woman, probably in their early 30s, and they don't get out, but they're yelling at the guy to get into the van. He tells them that an ambulance is coming, and they continue to shout for him to hurry up and get in. I'm pretty much shitting my pants at this point because they seem not to be paying attention to me parked there, but I was afraid if I took off that my driving past would put me on the radar and they'd start following me or shooting at me or something. I just sat there frozen in fear with my half-eaten baconator getting colder by the second and trying to quietly narrate what was happening to the 911 operator. Suddenly there was a the sound of a bunch of distant sirens coming closer. I heard them first and was incredibly relieved and grateful and the minivan people heard them as well and quickly sped off like a bat out of hell. An ambulance and a bunch of cop cars showed up. They get out and start shooting the man and all I want to do is drive away enough that the minivan was longer in my path. But the operator asked me to stay put. She asked for my name and birth date and contact info and after I gave it to her I can literally hear all of the same information I just gave her coming across all of the loud cop radios. Which means that ditch man could hear it as well. I'm not sure why, but that part is what scared me the most about the whole encounter. I already had PTSD at this point from some other life occurrences, and I was convinced for a few days after this incident that the minivan drug dealers were going to hunt me down. I recognize now that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's what my trauma brain was telling me at the time. Anyway, I had to sit there for probably another 5 or 10 minutes until a cop came to the window and told me that I could leave. I think they had just needed to confirm that I had nothing to do with whatever had happened to this man before allowing me to go. They must have figured out that I was just an unfortunate bystander with a late night fast food problem rather than a pissed off metal bat wielding dealer who was owed money. So yeah, that was a weird night. I never did finish my sandwich. But a few other crazy stories like this that happened as a result of being a good Samaritan on the road. You'll be happy to know that I rarely eat fast food now and I have learned to keep my Captain Sabaho tendencies to a minimum. April 2021, me and this person from my school who will stay anonymous in the story went on loads of walks and adventures together in abandoned places. He is a year older than me, so we weren't that close. He is ginger and was born in Poland. He invited me to go hunt ghosts with him in this abandoned house placed in a field. Nothing happened, but the house had a horrible smell and it gave me a weird chill vibe to it. For a bit of context, I never get scared, so this was a surprise that I was actually scared. I remember running out of the house as he slammed the door in my face. Then he locked it. It was a foggy day and we were both still in our school uniform. I was so shocked. I didn't know what to do. He had locked me out of the house and slammed the door. 
I went out to run out of the field, but immediately ran back and started banging on the door until it opened. I was terrified that day, and the whole place made me shiver. This feeling went on for weeks. We went to a different abandoned house weeks after, and this time it was stuck in a bush covered in nettles. It was only me and him this time. He told me to go on a walk while he checked it out, and I did just that. I walked back and turned around again to see that he had still been in there. This time when I was walking, I turned around to see a little girl running toward him. I freeze and shout his name and started running, only then to see the child's grandmother come out, now grabbing her wrist. He came out of the house and we started walking to the park. An old lady, a man in a van, and an old man in a car followed us the entire way there. They slowed down when we slowed down, turned when we turned, etc. It scared me so much. That's all we have for today. Thank you guys for listening to our stories. Be sure to tune in in a couple of weeks to hear more creepy, unsettling stories. You may submit your stories at ominouswhispers2021 at gmail.com. Again, my name is Vincent Rivera. Have a good week and be safe.